So you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. My truth is the <laughs> truth that you will never understand. Private ownership is one single individual giving green light. Doesn't that tell you that your system is more akin to authoritarian dictatorship? It's no editing! How come he can buy our house with our house and we live there? Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. The rights aren't rights if someone can take them away. Today, half every man in a straitjacket. To leave a country is like breaking out of jail. And to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bowl of shit looking in the mirror at itself. Shout out! Revolution! Shout out! Revolution is enough! Is enough! The poor must rise up! Police Academy essentially opens up policing to the citizens. It's a pretty anarchic idea for an 80s movie. Not only go on strike, but we need to fire the bosses. This whole you getting paid more doing less work thing, it's, it's not working out, Steve. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show, live in the studio at WCAALP in Albany, New York, Grand Street. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and commons economy. This discusses the means and the ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We do not entertain false dichotomies here. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. And that's what we were talking about before the break. These false dichotomies between anarchist or not anarchist, authoritarian versus libertarian. It's really a muddle of time, place, means, what do you mean? Like, it comes down to a recognition that power will exist authority will exist there's soft forms of authority parent and child expertise experience these are forms of uh, authority we, we can respect you know justifiable authority which is even in anarchism is like what we value so it's not about having no authority and thus like it's more about are we, we're arguing about centralized versus decentralized or you know and, and though in that way it's also could be these binaries it also um, like one this one Green Party guy actually described it a different way, where it's like hmm. power is either moving in a centripetal way, or like like it's is it going outward like a spiral or inward in a spiral. Interesting. Um, I'd never not heard just of it like not that. just like in one direction or vector, to put in physics terms. So this episode uh, carrying on from we did an ecology episode last time. I finally have Mike back in the studio. I've AI. returned. I've had a lot of work that I've had to do in grad school, and it has and been hard. And I moved. And you did everything. Yeah. So, so now I'm back. Well, I'm in a place where I can do stuff again. I've returned. Yeah. I subbed for a special needs class uh, this week. It was pretty challenging, hmm. or at least pretty interesting. Uh, I it just just to put a spin on a happy spin. Uh, the the kids wore their masks better than most adults. Oh wow! But they've kind of been trained to for the most part. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's it's a constant battle of telling people to 
move their mask over their nose. Oh my god! Like I work at an elementary school, and that's all I do is tell the kids to, to put it over their nose. Hey, the, your mask. Ha- put your mask over your nose. Doesn't work. It's not. Well, the, the problem is that we provide the kids snack, and when they're eating, they don't have to wear their mask. So it's a very blurry line of. Hey, little Johnny, are you still eating or are you done eating? Yeah. But are they eating with the distance between them? Probably not. Nope. Yeah. Well, we ha- we're in a separate grade level pod. So I work with the second graders and all the second graders are supposed to be t- are together in a pod. And that pod is supposed to be socially distant from the other grade pods. Sure. And that's how they're doing it. Right. It's all about limiting the uh, groupings not just having no groupings whatsoever right and that's kind of where another binary of like we all have to be completely isolated forever uh, though we're kind of getting used to doing everything in front of a computer which is pretty unhealthy very unhealthy uh, but there's definitely a middle ground where you simply focus on being around and open and seeing the faces of the 10 to 20 people right and that way, if anyone is test positive, you know it's one of like, those 20 people are then the ones at risk, not the hundreds upon hundreds that you may have interacted or touched common things right. with in public. That's the point. So I haven't even said what the show's uh, episode is about. <laughs> We're going to do uh, urbanism and architecture, particularly in the second half. I haven't done architecture in a while. It's, my ex- it's what I'm an expert in. And as much as we're a commentariat, much of the commentariat that exists doesn't know anything about a city design, or at least like they have a cursory thing when it comes to urban issues. But it always kind of feels cringe to me because it's like, uh, they don't really know what they're talking about, or they have very cursory experience reading things from City Lab or something. Meanwhile, I've read books and, and whatnot. And it's, and it's always more complicated, but it intersects with like public policy, uh, local activism that's more easily uh, easily done, or at least more attainable. Uh, you can actually get people to care about local taxes. It seems to be the only thing a lot of people can care about. So in that in that case, let's start with a piece from Strong Towns. There's about how apartment dwellers or apartment buildings or property subsidizes suburban homes and single detached homes this is written by daniel hengenges uh april in the spring of this year the dirty little sequel which nearly every municipal government in america must grapple with and this is when the pandemic was starting but it doesn't really matter this has been a long time problem if anything a problem an undercurrent or ignored problem for you know all of our lifetimes um since the 50s so something we have to grapple with is that single-family homes are usually a money loser for any local government's point of view, especially if they're on larger lots in a car-centric neighborhood, which is almost all of them now. The services and infrastructure they demand will likely cost more and in the long run, also long-term, than in tax revenue that the properties bring in. It's quite a paradox because as far as local elections and government is concerned, Single homeowners are the taxpayers. You know, whenever we talk about, we got to respect the needs of the taxpayers, but they're not actually bringing in revenue to justify mm. them having all the political power, okay. which they have held all my life, or secondary to um, the political power of 
larger property owners, people who own apartment buildings, you know, right. big landlords and companies. Elected officials must often do a difficult rhetorical dance because if, they're sp- if they have spent time seriously contemplating their budget outlook, they understand this fact. And yet they must speak to the citizenry, many of whom not only live in single-family homes, but ascribe a huge amount of cultural value to this living arrangement. Of course, it's American way. In a place like Adena, Minnesota, the whole cultural identity is built around an archetype of the suburban good life. Detached homes, big garages, big yards, quiet, leafy neighborhoods full of prosperous <clears throat> white families. <laughs> Adena is an interesting case because it's empathetically not poster child for suburban decline and insolvency. A first-ring suburb of Minneapolis, Adena has been known for seven, so that puts this in a certain context, has been known for seven decades as a posh address for the Twin Cities elite. This reputation precedes it even outside the Twin Cities region largely thanks to the Mighty Ducks movie. Mm-hmm. That kind of dates the writer a bit. I'm, I'm going to skip the part where he quotes the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> Here's a transcript. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, this is from the mayor's state of the community. or Because we've got to constantly city. be thinking about the, the benefits of some heightened density in some selected small parts of our community that don't affect single-family living. As I said, preserve what's great about Edina, but make sure that oh, we're, we're helping grow the community and help pay for what we all own together. We own this town together. That's the way I look at it. And it's our responsibility He's to take care of it. It's like to take care of your house. And so when, when the plumbing needs to be fixed, we've got to fix the plumbing. When the roof needs to be fixed, we've got to fix the roof. If we don't do that, we don't maintain our triple, double, triple-A bond rating from Moody's and Standard & Poor's. It's that simple. You go into deferred maintenance mode, you're in trouble with your bond rating, and that means you're borrowing money at a higher rate. Uh, and, and, and putting it on the back to your residents. We're trying to keep those rates as low as we can. So what does heightened density do for you in some circumstances? If we're doing it in 7% of our land area, out in the Southdale District primarily, how does that help all of us that are living in single-family homes? Well, here's the way it helps. It, the average single-family home, medium-priced home in Edina, 550000 might generate $5.50 a square foot in property tax. Uh, a multifamily dwelling out in the Southdale District with some height to it might generate at least twice or more than twice that amount per square foot. I view that as a subsidy for single-family homeownership, and I also view it as a way of helping us pay for everything we own together without putting the burden on all the single-family homeowners. Uh, so, talks like a communist, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> we own everything. But he really means as a community, it's stay of the community. Right. Um, so on one level, this appears to be a case of Mayor Hovland saying the quiet part out loud. The Dinah's whole budgetary strategy is premised on having the taxes paid by generally younger and less wealthy renters to subsidize the lifestyle of generally older and wealthier homeowners. And yet this isn't necessarily a bad idea for the renters involved. By the way, strong towns, liberal outfit. Just, just saying. No class in it. I mean, there's a little bit of class in it. Like, there's a little bit of class there by mentioning this difference, but right. it's like, it's, it's glossed over. Anyway, Edina is a pretty nice place without necessarily being able to afford the entire ante of a half million dollar home. They pay less in taxes as individuals than most homeowners, even as their apartment buildings, because of their higher density, generate much more. Basically saying that a renter pays less property tax right. or, or, or in their taxes to their landlord, who's just another millman. 
I should note that we've spoken positively of Hovland before, the mayor. He's someone who seems committed to good governance and transparency and not dodging tough questions. So that I take from this clip, granting all benefit of the doubt, is not that Hovland believes Adina's well-off homeowners deserve a subsidy from apartment dwellers, but rather that he knows exactly who his audience is. Mm. You know, the political power is held by these small property owners. Yeah. Because there are more of them. The big outstanding question to me, rather, is whether Adina's gambit to keep its lifestyle intact and its bond rating ship shape is actually viable. The city could have followed the path being charted by neighboring Minneapolis and open up all of its neighborhoods to incremental development in the form of missing middle housing like triplexes, three apartment uh, homes like a row house. This could generate a virtuous cycle of productive growth. And therein lies the rhetoric of strong towns where it's both capitalist realist and that there's no alternative to our current capitalist property system right so it's just about doing good governance and transparency inside it and that's totally enough but articles like this kind of are like reminders that like how do you make this work but except oh a virtuous cycle of of growth forever right but what does that do that that's gentr- you're describing gentrification you're right. describing um, what has happened in minneapolis which is not entirely positive uh or sustainable Especially socially, since this positive growth for building these triplexes involves uh, more policing and keeping the riffraff away. And, uh, well, what has that led to? <laughs> Brutal policing and thus the unrest. So instead, Adina has chosen to open up roughly 7% of the city, one little corner, to huge scale redevelopment in order to preserve the other 93% in amber and avoid subjecting its homeowners to fiscal pain or tough choices. And it's not even clear that homeowners are on board with this bargain. Mid- and high-rise development around the aging Southdale Mall has been consistently controversial, and at least one prominent developer proposal has gone down in flames amid citizen outrage over traffic and perceived overgrowth. It's just a corner, and it reminds me, of taking your lawn and and uh, something that many colleges suggest is like, okay, you don't want to remove your lawn, but you can improve the ecological balance of it by just taking the 10% corner of it and letting it grow wild or planting wildflowers for pollinators and stuff. Because um, otherwise, if it's all lawn, you're killing the ecosystem. Oh, yeah. And you're killing the bees. Moss um, lawns? Anyone? Hmm? Anyone for moss lawns? Moss, moss is good, too. Hmm. I actually don't know. This is a deeply fragile, is a fragile approach to growth, dependent on and thus granting disproportionate power and influence to a small number of large-scale private developers to shape the city's fiscal future and its land use vision. Right. And it's dependent on the rest of the city maintaining the elite reputation among Twin Cities residential enclaves that it has so far managed to hold on to, even as the inner ring suburbs have undergone socioeconomic decline meaning that inner-ring suburbs of most cities have or are becoming the new slums. Uh, as inner cities are redeveloping or becoming more bougie, uh, if people are displaced, they're displaced to the inner ring of the suburbs, and then uh, everyone who live there move farther out. Hmm. Though some of them also move back into the inner city, which has occurred in Albany as well. One inner ring suburb, though I wouldn't call it the inner ring, but it, it sort of is, is Latham. 
and there are a lot of latham has really built out and it's not dense but it's full as far as low uh, low density development goes there's no more room left in latham so so little some mixed uses being developed by you know bougie developers um, right. but you have people who are retired who lived in latham all their life as state workers and they're retiring to live back in albany okay Holvin actually boasts in a speech that the city has of late denied permission to build more housing units than it has approved, which he chalks up to Adina's judiciousness and high expectations for managed growth. But at some point, Adina needs to face up to fiscal reality. So there's the capitalist realism. Fiscal reality is that you've got to make more tax revenue. You've got to make the tarred choices. Right. It's completely a leaving out the federal level. I mean, it, they don't always, strong towns does, but I mean, fiscal reality. It's just like, we could have different economic system, we could, or imagine, but there's no imagination. Right. But hey, Adina's, but hey, Adina exceptionalism. If there's any city whose residents believe they ought to have their cake and eat it too, it may be this one. That's like, that goes for the whole country. Something that comes up with, um, comes to mind when I see the discourse lately is there's kind of ignoring that a lot of the harm in the world is done by the U.S., that we're the big empire. Yeah. And I'm relating it to, like, other countries are doing bad things or other countries are not as sustainable as we could be. Or maybe I'm just speaking to Trump and Biden's rhetoric yeah. in, the, in their last debate of America is fine. Right. It's the rest of the world that's like, needs to shape up. I'm like... We're the ones that are harming the world. And I think the more liberals realize that, the more they can move beyond whatever brainwashing is offered by the duopoly. It's like they half believe it. Like, I don't know how strong it is, but it's frustrating to see it expressed in social media, though. Um, in talking to Mike O'Neill, who's the communications director for the Green Party, is the only paid staffer as far as the party's concerned. Um, so he's, he's quite the guy and he mentioned, well, I mentioned to him how any rise in militancy, like, uh, in the spring is immediately like, there's an immediate campaign to tamp it down by a million voices saying, don't get violent. This is bad for the community. This is bad for the cause. This is bad. Like, this is like black people are saying, stop rioting, stop breaking windows. And then, yeah, immediately, the militancy tampers down, and then all the energy dissipates, and then we're kind of back where we were five, six, eight years ago. Mm. And it doesn't seem like we're, we're we have the momentum is then gone because then the militancy, the 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 feeling, the energy to do something, and it's like, no, take that energy, put it into voting, right. Just vote, just vote, just vote. No, notice it's not vote Biden. I mean, it mostly is, but that's what's implied. It's right. like just vote. It's like this is this is the way of like not being nonpartisan, but obviously like. And yeah. it's interesting that when I look at history or watch videos of history of like say Tito's partisans in World War II or communist movements, their agitation was all about getting people in the middle to pick a side. And just deciding that the communists were a better choice than what the fascists were doing. And when it comes to liberals in America, they 
don't see a material difference as far as what communists or anarchists offer and what fascists offer. Yeah. Because it's not their neighbors getting beat up, killed, or whatever, or if anything, some light property damage occurs. Gotta love horseshoe theorists. It, and and for them, it's it's a real, like, the theory matches the reality of what of their material conditions. Yeah. For the rest of the world, it's it's the opposite. But like in, in say the context of World War II Yugoslavia, where the Germans, when it was like, you know, what makes them the villains of history? That for every German killed by rebels, we're going to kill a hundred civilians. And you had different partisan groups, communist one and the non-communist one that was more nationalistic. Right. And eventually the nationalists started collaborating to avoid these massacres. But with every massacre, people were driven to join the communist partisans because they were the ones that they kept fighting and were going to keep fighting, and they forced people to choose. Are you going to choose the people? Are you going to collaborate or surrender to the people killing your neighbors? Or are you going to help us fight and stop the massacres? It's a totally different situation that we're in. So the thought is like, what kind of agitation forces people to pick a side? Right. Electoral agitation, like the Green Party or the Libertarian Party does, doesn't seem to get people to choose a side. Or it has them run into the arms of the establishment. Yeah. Um, or rather, the duopoly forces them to. Yeah. And we're not providing compelling agitation, I guess. We're not causing them... To punish others, they punish us. They can just attack us directly. Uh, unlike partisans, where it's like we we don't disappear into the mountains. So the Germans right. had to kill civil massacre civilians. They couldn't massacre the communists. Establishment can massacre us, the left, over and over and over again. And the liberals do not have to care. Right. They don't have to pick a side. They can do what they keep doing, or they can be neutral. Neutrality yeah. is an option. Yeah. It, it, and it's so strange that they see Biden as not a fascist or, right. or not fascism. Like fascism is coming from our system. But if you just put it all on Trump, you know, it's just all even other socialists, other greens. It's like, no, we got to get rid of Trump. Orange man bad. It's so frustrating. I've seen it explained that fascism is a, uh, a pairing. Let's call uh, the establishment and uh, the system to a human body and they compare uh socialism as being the disease and that we are trying we see the establishment as being fundamentally corrupt so we have to uh, get rid of it and change it and so we are going in and we're changing the system or we're trying to make it better and that that system seeks to uphold itself and seeks to not change and not grow and so fascism are the antibodies of the system meant to kill off the socialism that's trying to change it so to go back to urbanism uh which is kind of almost this is not quite like a counterpoint to what we just read but it's a different version of a similar problem of the inequalities that are inherent to the tax system Hmm. or development or capitalist development and how lack of imagination leads to just a continuation of problems and not a finding of solutions. Right. Oh, what was it? 
think it was Kunstler. Like, There's no such thing as a solution to a problem, just an intelligent reaction. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind, too. This is from a city commentary. No, it's cityobservatory.org. The Great Disconnect, the Perverse Rhetoric of Gentrification. So this is an odd piece in that it's unique, and that's what, it, uh, what got me interested in it. It's kind of making a case that the hype about gentrification is overblown, as, as like this is the problem. It's almost like a misdiagnosis of what the, the gentrification, quote-unquote, is a symptom, of course, of a larger problem. And this, so this piece goes into that. This is written by Jason Stegley. It appeared on his blog originally. As this decade draws to a close, the story of urban America is increasingly about the great disconnect between a small number of large cities that are thriving, quote-unquote, and a, more, a much larger number of cities of all sizes that are continuing to fall behind. What's true for a handful of large cities is increasingly untrue for a majority of cities in a vast middle of the country. Nowhere is the great disconnect more apparent than in the debate about gentrification. It's a hot topic of conversation in coastal cities like New York, San Fran, with expensive living costs that are also home to influential journalists and academics, because it is in these cities that home property values and rents have skyrocketed. Writing about it has become a cottage industry for many pundits and urban policy wonks. Many of the earlier pieces penned on the topic were important, thought-provoking, and well-reasoned. And it's something that's observed in even small cities like ours, where certain developments go in, speculation starts on other adjacent blocks, and rents are increased as a result. So, yeah. So to just suppose, like, whatever data is presented here with some reality that people are, in fact, being pushed out of other neighborhoods. But very specific neighborhoods, I think, is the point. Uh, but what started as an airing of thoughtful, reasonable, and understandable concerns, is that how it always goes, about displacement and inequality in a handful of coastal cities has turned into an intellectual dishonesty, hysteria, and even self-parody, particularly when it is applied to long-suffering cities of the Rust Belt. Because it comes in the form of, don't have any of these developments in small cities. It will apparently make people worse off. Peter Moskowitz, How to Kill a City, which John Steffens actually calls an ideological rant in the guise of journalism, makes it clear that no matter how many times he mentions Detroit, it is clear that the New Yorker simply doesn't really understand the place. He says, The new Detroit is now nearly a closed loop. It is possible to live in this new Detroit and never set foot in the old one. I've got news for him. Detroit has been like that for 50 years. It's just that the closed loop was called Eight Mile Road. Gentrification didn't kill Detroit. Urban decline did. And we can be more confident that more decline won't resurrect it. Hmm. Which kind of sets up this. And the, you know, as soon as I got to this point, of like, is the article saying that any gentrification is thus better than no gentrification? Which is like saying, it's, it's basically saying like, you should be grateful you have a dead end job. Better than having no job, right? A recent New York Times piece on climate change warns us that although Duluth, yeah, Duluth may benefit from climate refugees, that's a suburb of Detroit, new growth raises the specter of, you guessed it, gentrification. In case you were wondering, Duluth has been steadily losing population since 1960. Then there's Samuel Stein's capital city, which at least gets points for originality by dispensing with blaming hipsters for de or developers for it. 
but aims its sights squarely on my overwhelmingly leftward-leaning profession of urban planning. Even going so far as to say that proto-planners, whatever that means, were responsible for Native American genocide as they, quote, enable the country's murderous westward expansion and map the rail networks and other infrastructure that made it possible. So this is kind of like a liberal planner who doesn't seem to get that America is a genocidal uh, empire. Mm-hmm. So it's like, these, these social justice warriors are attacking my identity. Anyway, there is even a movement called Just Green Enough, which is premised on the idea that parks and poor neighborhoods shouldn't be made too nice in order to prevent displacement by gentrification. Precious energy and effort is expanded on endless worry and discussion, and in some cases active opposition, to a nice park, a new shop, or grocery store, because it could potentially displace someone. So this is where, like, fear of gentrification or the acknowledgement that our economic structures are basically going to result in someone losing. And that's acknowledged of, like, we don't want people to lose... But because they're all capitalist realists who can't, like, we're not organizing for, we're not organizing or building socialism. So we're, we're always continually working within this rotten system where people have to be losers, that if a neighborhood does get better, it means someone is going to be priced out of it. So if we want to prevent that, it's like, in our current system, the answer is to don't have that development. Don't make the parks better. Don't actually improve anything. Because as soon as you improve it, that makes it more desirable for investment, but investment creates higher rents. And that's only a problem if wages are stagnant, which they have been in that fi- in the 50-year time period. But meanwhile, the poor themselves continue to languish in disinvested and actively avoided neighborhoods without any of the amenities or conveniences that the activists and academics have or take for granted in their own neighborhoods. However well-intentioned, these efforts end up doing the same thing, ensuring that people living in poor neighborhoods continue to have the worst of everything, although I would say capitalism is what defines that, not liberal activists and lefties. Separate and unequal, with substandard facilities and amenities, all for their own good. How elitist, patronizing, and sad. For those interested in separating data-driven fact from ideologically-driven fiction, a new report... And notice, he is not driven by any ideology. Of course. But he brings up American neighborhood change in the 21st century, gentrification and decline, which provides a welcome or different narrative. He's a, he calls it a corrective. Anyone who is serious about understanding urban public policy, equity, and neighborhood change should read the report. I think I clicked on it, but it, I didn't find it a quick read. <laughs> the report examines the way in which neighborhoods in the 50 largest U.S. metropolitan areas uh, are growing or shrinking, getting richer or poorer, rebuilding or disintegrating. It qualifies the degree which neighborhoods are experiencing growth, displacement of low-income people, concentration of poverty, and abandonment. The most common form of American neighborhood change by far is poverty concentration rather than wealth concentration. Hmm. Which sounds shocking considering, like, the stats on wealth consolidation and the rise of, you know, our super billionaire class. But he's talking about neighborhoods. In fact, there was no metropolitan area in the nation where a low-income person was more likely to live in, 
Let me reread this sentence. In fact, there was no metropolitan area in the nation where a low-income person was more likely to live in an economically expanding neighborhood than in an economically declining neighborhood. The findings mirror that Alan, what Alan Machach says in his must-read book, The Divided City. Gentrifying areas are rarely the most distressed areas of a city, particularly where demolition has unraveled a neighborhood's fabric, but where few attractive homes or buildings of any kind remain, and thus predominantly black neighborhoods are less, not more likely to experience gentrification than larger white working-class ones. So the lowercase t truth is that poor neighborhoods have stayed the same and slightly better neighborhoods and cities have gentrified. This seems counter to the experience of Brooklyn and Bedford-Stuyen and a number of others. There, There is um, the hipster haven in North Brooklyn, I forget its name now, um, that was white working class as well. So you have like, I went to a boutique restaurant where it's just meatballs and it's next to kind of like an old style Irish cheers kind of bar. Where everybody knows, knows your, your name. name. Instead, gentrification typically follows a pattern of black neighborhood avoidance. Rather than being subject to displacement by gentrification, urban residents who are both black and poor are far more likely to just be left behind in the same ghettos. Instead of displacement by gentrification, what we are seeing, as far as the data, in most cities in my part of the country, including Detroit, could be described as displacement by decline. As middle-class residents, African-Americans in particular, frustrated by the continued social and economic disintegration of their neighborhoods, are moving the safer and more attractive neighborhoods in the suburbs. So he seems, yeah, he's talking about middle-class blacks. There's a consolid, there's less a consolidation of the middle class, but more that certain neighborhoods, all the poor people have to live in the same place, mm. which suggests that they're being moved from somewhere, displaced from other neighborhoods. So, so maybe the conclusion is just that the poor are just getting poor, which is true. And the rich are getting richer. I mean, even on a good middle-class salary or professional salary, it makes me curious to look at the Labor Bureau statistics mm. and what what are the numbers on professional jobs. Are they growing? Have they been the same lately? Maybe it's going down. Is it declining at all? Is it just that more attention is put on professional workers since they actually have buying power and there's enough of them to make a venture profitable right. versus just doing platonomy where you just service and build anything just for the hyper rich because the 1% of the 1% is not a lot of people and they all live in a few two counties. While the urban renaissance is a handful of neighborhoods gets all the headlines. It is the rapid concentration of poverty and urban decline that is far more prevalent and troubling which in Duluth and Detroit. And so it's also a counter narrative to like cities are coming back. Right. Cities are being reborn. No, certain neighborhoods in certain cities are being redeveloped. The rest of the city is worse than ever. Just look at Utica, <laughs> which I just visited last night mm. and was bummed that they still don't actually have a park. Yeah. That sucks. Like at least not like around the downtown area. I mean, like there's yeah. no, there's no like they're along the Mohawk River. There's no park. There's a marshland that's preserved, but it's like it was accessible. 
I've lived my entire life in Akron, which, like Duluth and Detroit, have been losing population and wealth for 60 years. Those of us who work on behalf of and love these places do our best to fight poverty, abandonment, urban decline every day. But they're really fighting the system, so it's not really going to happen unless you build socialism. Living here, it is hard for me to understand getting worked up in anger at someone with some money in their pocket renovating an old house in an urban neighborhood, opening a brewery, releasing a brand new, brand new apartment downtown. Well, it personally makes me upset because I don't have the capital to do that stuff. Um, where does the capital come from? This money does not come from nowhere. And the ability to acquire that money, to be able to be trusted with it. Because half of all businesses still fail, you know, no matter how hipster they are. I see a lot of people, even here in the Rust Belt, who are energized about gentrification, convinced that it is the enemy. It's considered a sexy topic for activism. But I don't see the same level of passion to activism being applied to fighting the spread of concentrated urban poverty, neighborhood abandonment, or the yawning. And that just shows, like, who this guy is around. Right. Liberal planners. Yeah. So he's in his circles, this is, like, the like the interesting debate. Completely ignoring all the actual mutual aid and community groups and, and projects that do fight concentrated poverty because that's what you have to do to survive. So this guy is in his own bubble, too. Like, he, he throws shade at liberals who are in a bubble of privilege, and he says how sad it is. But it's like, well, what is your answer? Like, what, how, like how does one fight this concentrated poverty? I mean, I came to the conclusion that we have to change the economic system. Right. His conclusion is, let's see if I can get to it, not get distracted by buzzwords like gentrification. That, that doesn't help. How, what, what does that do? It helps you not be distracted by... Um, <laughs> by buzzwords. Uh, by buzzwords and um, like trans activists, like, like the trans community. They're just asking for stuff. But yeah, it, it just sounds reactionary. It's reactionary of like... People are talking about an issue, and it seemed really well-reasoned at first, but now it's a witch hunt. Right. Now it's like they're attacking me and my sensibilities that we just need to, like, have more bake sales. Or in, the, and in his case, <laughs> we need to encourage this investment from Wall Street, you know, to have a Main Street again. As if big microbreweries are, like, Main Street businesses. They're not. Right. No. People coming in from the outside, they're still living in the suburbs. You know, they're not like, yeah, but whatever. Yeah. So I found that really interesting as far as like conversation for the rest of the hour. Let's look at, this is a kind of a fun one, but also dovetails with the ecology. It's from the Straits Times. Plants overrun housing project in Chengdu, turning eco paradise into mosquito infested jungle. So this uh, appeals to me because as an architecture grad, I see, or or in solar punk groups and ecology groups, there's always lots of posts about vertical farms, vertical forests, and I'm always kind of turned off. I'm not I'm not big on them. Why? Because a tall buildings are energy intensive. Right. We don't really need them. Two, we don't really need vertical things. We just need better land use now, and generally, like we don't lack space. It's just what we use a lot of the space for. We use the space for monoculture. That's very inefficient. And in this case, you kind of had a monoculture of, of something else. So, so you have these large vertical apartment blocks, 30 stories tall. Right. And like the some of the selling point is every apartment has its own terrace garden. And put them all together with all these terraces, it's like you have a vertical 
forest garden. It's all very green and lush and attractive. So from Beijing, an experimental green housing project in a Chinese megacity promised prospective residents life in a vertical forest with manicured gardens on every balcony. All 826 apartments were sold by April this year, according to Project's real estate agent. But instead of a modern eco-paradise, the towers look like a set of a desolate post-apocalyptic film. The problem, mosquitoes like the plants, too. Oh. Only a handful of the families moved into Chengdu's Qingyai City Forest Garden because of an infestation. Which So it started before. Uh, they planted the forest terrace gardens before bringing in the people who would maintain them. Uh, without any tenants to care for them, the eight towers had been overrun by their own plants and then thus invaded by mosquitoes. The plants have almost entirely swallowed up some neglected balconies with branches hanging over rail- railings all over the towers. Footage shot this month showed. But that's kind of also the intended uh, result. Right. That you have the plants kind of grow over and around things and looks cool. Paper was seen taped over some of the windows that were still visible behind the overgrown plants. Uh, but some residents appeared to have brave mosquitoes. A handful of balconies had pruned plants, outdoor furniture. So there were some families that grew, uh, moved in. But that's the thing. If people move in first and manage the plants, then the mosquito population would drop. Now, that's the end of this. Uh, there are, I think, other articles that maybe said more about the need for a diverse set of plants. Uh, there are certain plants that pell mosquitoes. Or at the very least, if you have proper drainage, then you don't get pooled water, and that's where mosquitoes put their nests. So there's all kind of ecological considerations that are maybe left out by certain designers or developers or maybe the designer said something in a meeting but then the capitalist says uh no it costs extra money let's cut let's not do that right so i think we will start so actually let's start with some context so we have many federal buildings in this country mike and how they're built or what they look like is usually a top-down decision in fact, it's always a top-down decision. Of course. In many developments, especially in certain cities where like, maybe there's some regulation put on by some progressive council people, put in the zoning code that like, when you do a big project, you need to consult the neighborhood on your design. Now, when it comes to capitalist realism or our economic system, it's like there's only so much you can change a design. You know, If it's, right. it's ugly, it's going to stay ugly, yeah. no matter what the neighborhood says. Maybe you can change how many parking spaces it has, or the fight will be over how tall it is. Oh. You know, cut two stories off. They, you know, the, the developers can change their plans and revise them based on public input, because otherwise the zoning board, under guideline, wouldn't shouldn't or shouldn't approve it, okay. even if they have everything in order. If a neighborhood's against it, I really like the ability for a community to be able to have a actual veto power over what gets built in it now that it sounds really terrible as far as private property rights and i should be able to build like the house i want and this like you know (laughs) it really discourages business owners because then they actually have to exert social capital as well and it kind of means that those with social capital is 
will be able to actually do capitalist things. Right. Which is a, a, an ongoing trend as we actually like work to make things democratic, social capital matters more, the ability to change people's minds or to be able to anticipate people's reactions. This has not happened on the federal level. Sometimes on the state level, there's public input comment periods and stuff like that. I remember being part of a public comment period on high-speed rail in New York. I think all of these plans have been dropped <laughs> uh, since I haven't uh, seen a single uh, word of it. But there was the plan of like deciding whether to just make the current Amtrak lines faster or build a high-speed line. Now, when it comes to liberal, like, you know, transport enthusiasts and stuff, the high-speed rail is everything. But when you actually look at the plans, the cost, the sticker cost, and what would have to be done to make a high-speed rail line between New York City and Buffalo, it would mean clear-cutting quite a bit of forest. Mm. It would mean new track. Some of it would go over marshes. <laughs> stuff like that. And, and it would cost 10 times more than just making the tracks uh current amtrak lines and adding maybe another set of tracks onto it right uh or adding or expanding certain congested zones which would create delays and it's also when you actually look at how much time it would actually like how fast would the trip be making a high-speed line would only make the trip like an hour faster okay and i'm like looking at the sticker price the actual like environmental damage it's like maybe it's not worth it huh it's only like, why don't we just make the current rail line two hours faster instead of three hours faster okay. uh, with the with the high speed rail? Because otherwise, you get like those maps where the high speed rail visions are just a straight freaking line. Right. Like that's not actually how geography works. No. You don't just draw a big fucking straight line. Well, that's how it does when you have one person at the top that says we're drawing a straight line, and yes. that's how it's gonna be. I mean, if you look at the line, uh, the interstate highway system, that's kind of like that's the fastest route that could have been charted hmm. as far as the geography is concerned. So if anything, like this is where like I'm not really a big trains guy at the moment. We have this really well-developed highway system. Let's just have really fast buses hmm. or buses that go everywhere using the interstate system, but frequently. It would, it would only, like, matter if it's frequent enough. Right. So instead of, like, one bus to... Like, enough where you don't have to, like, check the schedule. You just go to the bus stop. Every hour. Know. Right. Or every two hours. Exactly. That kind of thing. But it would take a lot of buses and a lot of lines. Yeah. But we have... We already have the track. <laughs> right. Okay. I'll just spend the last five minutes of the hour. There's a confusion about brutalism. Mm-hmm. With... Modernism, that is bad. And then there's, like any kind of art, there's also good versions of it. Right. Civic thick and federal buildings or public buildings that use modern international style, usually very piss poor because it was top-down design that did not cater or consider actual common, common needs or public needs. So that's how you get city halls and other federal or state buildings that maybe do a little bit like maybe there's a little public plaza in front of it like the state building in utica i, I, I saw which is a modern tower versus some of the stuff you see in dc right or elsewhere uh so that will be do you have any questions about um 
Um, honestly, I don't know enough about architecture to know what to ask. Well, um, I could be poetic and say it is music frozen in space. Aw, that's cute. Yes. That, but there's a confusion that like all civic buildings that were built, built mid-century or brutalist, uh, anything with... So brutalism refers to a style of modern architecture that is reliant on concrete. Okay. So large... That's all brutalism is, really? Just concrete? Yes, because it doesn't come from the derivative of it being brutal huh. or tough. It comes from the type of French concrete, Breton Brut. Oh! This is one of those examples when there's many, many of them, the, of where a type of word is created by those of expertise because it has a specific meaning, and then it's used in a common parlance where then it sounds like or is a synonym for something else. It's like, okay. oh, it, it starts with brutal. So it must be because it's tough and mean. Right. And thus, why would anyone think this is pretty? Hmm. But it's about the concrete and it's about being monumental, being a large mass that's not imposing to intimidate you, but to make you feel like a sense of awe in the same way when you look at a mountain. Like, do you think a mountain is trying to bully you? You know, and good brutalism gives you has this has the same sensibility of like a mountain or a, a natural phenomenon huh. versus something that is trying to com that communicates you are nothing. The state is everything, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. You asked me about like what what's the style of that the Nazis had right. and they had a type of neoclassical revival where. You could say that the difference between American neoclassical and Nazi neoclassical is the width of the columns. Really? So the columns in fascist architecture are narrow, like jail bars. Huh. Oh. And the columns in quote-unquote liberal countries are thick, thick columns. I did, I did not know that. that. That's really interesting. You can just look at them side by side, though. There's not much... Uh, fascist architecture that remains some right. of it does particularly that was designed by um the grand the grand the uncle of a teacher i had hmm. Tarani in, in italy which is in milan and the sensibility of this modern city hall building in milan was that like the fascists are in charge of making the decisions but it's transparent it, it this modern architecture is progressive it promotes transparency because you can look into the window, the big curtain wall, and see them making the decisions. Um. And then the, it has a big blank wall in which movies and propaganda or advertisements can then be projected, projected onto it. Huh, interesting. And that's what also made it a modern progressive building. Okay. Uh, as far as the standards of the time. And that modern architecture is also very ambiguous when it comes to its politics. Because you have like Corbusier, uh, who... Design very fantastic, you know, progressive building in the Barcelona Pavilion, which is like the first kind of building that didn't have four walls. It had like two walls that were disjointed with glass walls linking them together. Okay. It was, it was like half glass, half stone. And he designed another one for the next exposition. And it was in Berlin this time. Oh. And so it's the same thing, but now it has a swastika flag next to it. Oh. Now it wasn't accepted. But it was like he was looking for work and he would be paid for the commission. Right. All of these architects also 
try to um, they design stuff uh, for a, a, a design competition for the palace of the Soviets as well. So it's all modern architecture. And the whole point is that it's for everybody. Right. It doesn't belong to any one country. That's what's internationalist and progressive about it. Hmm. But yeah, but that's, that's basically like modern architects were all leftists at one particular point huh. in some way. Gentlemen, pedestrians for the design of the, this architectural block, the residential block. And I thought it best that the architects themselves came in to explain the advantages of both designs. That must be the first architect now. Ah, yes, it's Mr. Wiggin of Ironside and Malone. Morning, gentlemen. Uh, this is a 12-storey block combining classical neo-Georgian features with all the advantages of modern design. Uh, the tenants arrive in the entrance hall here, are carried along the corridor on a conveyor belt in extreme comfort and past murals depicting Mediterranean scenes towards the <laughs> rotating knives. The last 20 feet of the corridor are heavily soundproof. The blood pours down these chutes. Uh, did you say knives? Uh, rotating knives, yes. Are you uh, proposing to slaughter our tenants? Does that not fit in with your plans? We wanted a simple block of flats. Ah, I see. I hadn't uh, correctly divined your attitude towards your tenants. <laughs> you see, I mainly design slaughterhouses. Yes, Mind you, this is a real beaut. I mean, none of your blood caked on the walls and flesh flying out of the windows inconveniencing the passers-by with this one. I mean, my life has been building up to this. Yes, and well done. <laughs> but we did want a block of flats. Well, may I ask you to reconsider? I mean, you wouldn't regret it. Think of the tourist trade. No, it's, it's just that we wanted a block of flats and not an abattoir. <laughs> yes, but of course, that's just the sort of blinkered Philistine pig ignorance I've come to expect. Non-creative garbage. You sit there on your loathsome spotty behind, squeezing blackheads, carrying a tinker's cuss about the struggling artist. You excrement! You lousy hypocritical whining toadies with your lousy coloured TV sets and your Tony Jackson golf clubs and your bleeding Masonic handshakes. You wouldn't let me join with you, you black boring bastards. Well, I wouldn't become a Freemason now if you went down on your lousy, stinking, pulliment knees and begged me. Well, we're sorry you feel like that, but we uh, did want to go that. Nice though the abattoir is. <laughs> Oh, pfft, the abattoir, that's not important. But if one of you could put in a word for me, I'd love to be a Freemason. Freemasonry opens doors. I mean, I was, I was a bit on edge just now, but, but if I was a Mason, I'd just sit at the back and not get in anyone's way. Thank you. I've got a second-hand apron. Thank you. And welcome back. So we were just, we were just having an unorganized conversation where I dropped some knowledge, architecture knowledge. Fancy enough. I was leaning into a conversation about uh, back in early in the year, Trump put out, or Trump administration, put out an executive order mandating that all future federal buildings should be neoclassical. Of course he did. Now, for some context, in the last decade or so, uh, with, say, the loss of confidence in neoliberal order, some of the neoliberal order includes its art forms. And some of those art forms are contemporary architecture, especially starting uh, with postmodernism from the 60s on. Now, what is postmodern architecture? It's usually typified by putting symbols over substance. You're taking modern building buildings and then you're kind of putting forms onto it to put meaning back because a lot of the international style was about taking the meaning and ideological content out of the building. 
Okay. Why would you do this? So that it, users can express the meaning themselves in their own way. They can hang curtains. They can put war, art on the walls. Their art. It's not up to the architect to top down decide what the accents around the windows will be. Okay. Uh, in a Soviet housing block, that's drab on the outside. On the inside, every apartment would be a cacophony of colors that each resident would decorate. So th- that's usually left out of discussions about modern apartment blocks and stuff like that. Right. Um, and it doesn't help that you have... But yeah, we do that also as well. So there's the trends of architects or design housing to like you know let people have the ability to express themselves in their decorating and whatnot the international style modern architecture had a very progressive revolutionary even spirit to it which is why it gelled well with the kind of the new deal welfare of building mass housing for everyone right uh, it took on really quickly with the soviet union and when it came to the great society the new deal you have the projects, which is just about housing everyone, putting making that right. a priority. And in public buildings, it comes in the form of letting people project their own meaning on government buildings and not like putting big murals of, say, westward expansion on the side right. or white people killing <laughs> natives, Yay. you know, in bas reliefs. Things that need to be destroyed later. Now, this kind of comes from... There is a modern theorist named Adolf Luce. He wrote a treatise called uh, Ornament is Crime. It's very pretty racist. It's very Victorian in, in where it's coming from. That, oh, if you look at uncivilized people, they tattoo themselves. <laughs> we shouldn't tattoo our buildings with ornament. What? But he's coming from a place, or at least modern designs coming from a place from the Victorian era where wealth and over-contradictions of the time were expressed in the over-putting over-ornament on everything, like overdoing it. Hmm. And overly extravagant. It just becomes meaningless. Okay. It doesn't connect to people's lives and what they're actually doing or what the building's about. So it kind of overcompensates by saying, like, okay, we'll make the building neutral almost Hmm. in symbolic content people can project their own meaning but this leaves out that there's an actual it's a dialectic between ourselves and our art you know we project meaning meaning is given to us right it's a give and take and so the new kind of way of thinking lately in contemporary architecture and design when i was in school is that ornament is okay it just needs to be contextual Okay. It needs to matter. It needs to mean something to the people who use the building. Huh. Or it needs to be made by the people who use the building. Meaning, you decide what the ornament is with the clients, with the potential users. Interesting. Not just say, this wall will be green, or whatever. But there's also rules of design of, if not ornament, but the finishing of a building in which you give it a character. Okay. So, but all the while, there's a there's a kind of reactionary movement, usually led by snobs of various types, like Trump, where we need to right. go. Uh, what what projects wealth, status, power, and chauvinist values is is an expression of chauvinist values of using neoclassical architecture, hmm. um, of returning to the old days, 
or representing our traditional American values, meaning we, we, we just keep making callbacks to some earlier golden age, like Rome. Yep. It was really big where Prince Henry of the UK royal family had this crusade against modern architecture where he would personally involve himself in various public projects so that they weren't done by a contemporary, a good architect designer, but like he would promote neoclassical design and he would get some victories, but it was mostly a nuisance. And I just mentioned it because it's, it's both funny because it's like you have this studio study prince who has nothing better to do, but he made it his cause. (laughs) <laughs> that the degeneracy of our architecture and the buildings is like represents the degeneracy of the down the decline of our society you of know course. from the homosexuals and the <laughs> and the mexicans right so this all leads into a latest uh kind of version of this trend which is trump has put an executive order called making federal buildings beautiful again of course of course that's what he called it is it what he called it or is this what the press called it? I think that's what the press is calling oh, okay. it. Though. But the executive order that would make a classical style the default for federal buildings in Washington and other parts of the country. New York Times reported Wednesday. So maybe I should go to that story instead. But this is The Hill. The draft order would encourage Greek and Roman architectural designs instead of modern architecture. Uh, the order is expected to go in front of Trump next month. person familiar with the development told The Times. Which is interesting because when you look at the Trump real estate empire... It's both really gauche. Like, isn't it all modern architecture? Like, I don't know. What on the any... outside, it is. On the inside, it's it's like Baroque, ostentatious. Oh, right. On the inside, uh, it looks like some go- gold monster threw up on it. Yeah, exactly. Class. <laughs> Classical and traditional architectural styles have proven their ability to inspire such respect for our system of self-government. <laughs> their use should be encouraged, reads a draft of the order incredible the national civic art society pushed for the order arguing that so this is this is there's a actual organization national civic art society such a such a non-embodied name you know it's like this doesn't say we want to go backwards arguing that contemporary design in buildings is dehumanizing slightly true yeah according to the times but i would say that's true because of authoritarian top-down planning oh yeah and capitalist expediency definitely because capitalism is what is the the, the main dehumanizing Ex- force yeah. it is like it, it makes things a commodity and thus we can't relate to it so the building's a commodity it's something to consume but not right. enjoy or be a part of and we can't be a part of it yeah, it's more that's happening than just what is on the skin outside, you know? Right. Because at the end of the day, these neoclassical buildings are still modern buildings as far as their construction and all that. Right. Uh, so the new guidelines would apply to any federal government buildings contracted through the General Services Administration, and that would cost more than $50 million. The proposed changes would not affect Sasonian-funded museums. Hmm. That's good because Smithsonian funded uh, museums, like the, the the family of the the Smithsonian right. overall yeah. in D.C., is every type of architecture is represented because they add a new museum every decade or so. Oh. Uh, one of them, which I really liked, is the African and Asian wings, which are actually underground, and the only huh. above ground portion is basically the lobby, which is 
kind of sticks up. Interesting. And they flank the sides of the the castle building, which is the main. You know, when you think of the Smithsonian, it's like the this castle building on right. the, on the mall. And this is still from the National Civic Art Society. You know, it's like uh, Turning Point USA, right? But for buildings. <laughs> For too long, architectural elites and bureaucrats have derided the idea of beauty, blatantly ignored public opinions on style, and have quietly spent taxpayer money, taxpayer money, <laughs> constructing ugly, expensive, and inefficient buildings. This is written by a Marion Smith. Most wise name imaginable. Smith told The Hill that the order is a great step forward. It's a great leap forward. Yay. <laughs> Cultural revolution in revising the GSA design process and protecting the classical design of Washington, D.C., which has had bipartisan consensus for hundreds of years. He called some of the reactions to the executive order outrageous and not based in reality, adding that the committee will include analysis of cost, sustainability, and environmental concerns. Totally believable. And this guy, an environmentalist, the same way that Trump is not a racist. Ah. The order would implement a rebeautification committee to discuss designs, but the White House would ultimately decide which style is approved. Proposed modern designs. So the, the imperial presidency grows ever further. Yeah. <laughs> Proposed modern designs would have to reach a higher bar to obtain approval. Some architects have criticized the proposed order, saying it would give the White House the authority to regulate design, an area they say President Trump doesn't have expertise in. <laughs> That's great. Uh, the American Institute of Architects, go team, has encouraged members to speak out against the order and sign a petition con condemning the top-down approach of regulating design. Of course, being a liberal organization they are, the best they can do is file a petition. Right. By restricting design decisions through this executive order, it would put Washington bureaucrats in charge of design decisions affecting communities they may never visit, mm. referring to federal buildings that are not in D.C. Right. But even if they are, it's not like there aren't other people who live there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, federal buildings in D.C. are, you know, it's a stage. It's for show. Right. Now, to uh, when, when they mention that um, neoclassical is popular... This uh, is, let's go to the, <laughs> oh, yeah, I just realized, this is on their site. Oh. Let's go to their site. Let's do it. Where did I, it was on a Facebook page, I guess, but it was shared, it was shared, it was there, it's their page. The American Civic Art Institute. I wonder if we can find out who funds them. The Americans preferred architecture for federal buildings. As, as national, they, but they conducted it via the Harris Poll. Hmm. So I thought it was a Harris poll was the source, but if they <laughs> funded it, right. they're going to get the results they want. Yeah. Uh, or rather, they have a premise, and they're going to set up the survey. So um, it's worded in a way that, yeah. But here's the introduction from, this is, let's see, let's see. What, okay. Since the founding of the U.S., there has been a discussion regarding what architectural style or styles <laughs> is best for federal government buildings, including courthouses, courthouses, courthouses. I'm joking. But... What I observe, or what I observe from this poll, is that most contemporary federal buildings built in the last 30 years have been courthouses. Right. Which speaks to, hmm, this might intersect with the growth of the prison industrial complex. Huh, maybe. This tradition, oh, uh, the tradition of neoclassical, which includes neoclassicism, 
Greek Revival, Beaux Art, and WPA Style, which is International Style, Wait. by the way. WAP style? The worker, uh, WPA was the worker uh, public administration. Uh, I, I misheard you as the, uh, the the Cardi B song that Ben Shapiro spoke. No, 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 no. This is WPA, <laughs> uh, which okay, is the okay. New Deal program where oh, all right. public buildings and national parks were built out via oh. by paying people, giving people jobs via the public domain right which is a, what the green new deal or any kind of central um socialist transition will probably include right the job guarantee versus an income guarantee right though it includes a jo- income guarantee anyway but a job for anyone who wants it after world war ii the, uh, the general services administration which was established in 49 the agency responsible for constructing federal buildings this abandoned classical architecture in favor of modernism because it represented America's new position as a global power. Right. Because it wasn't just in America they built these um, designs. Uh, in all of the U.S. embassies and every new country oh. uh, was now international. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. It's global, man. Global empire. In 94, uh, they instituted a design program still existing today that brought postmodern architecture into the mix. Under this program called Design Excellence, only six of the 78 federal buildings constructed have been classical. Just 8%. Oh, no. With the remainder, 92, being modernist or postmodernist. For, fe- uh, for February 2020, there, was, there were press reports of a leaked draft of the White House executive order that would reorient and then mentions what we just read about. Sorry, the Democracy and Design Act is the bill proposed in Congress to overturn the executive order. Okay. Our aim in undertaking this survey conducted online by the Harris Poll on behalf of us among 2,000 adults was to gain insights on Americans' architectural preferences. Because everyone knows what they want, right? Right. We wish to discover what matters most when it comes to U.S. courthouses and other federal office buildings. What do Americans really like? The results show that Americans strongly prefer a more traditional look when it comes to the architecture, blah, blah, blah. They, they agree with us. Image selection. From among a list of many dozens of photos, the seven pairs of images were very carefully selected and edited to ensure fair comparisons. Factors such as sky color, angle of photo, light condition, distance. So, yeah, they, they, you know, they're, they're trying to be good, good about it. Right. Maybe we just disagree on the fundamental aspects of what <laughs> public architecture should be about. When it comes to the style of architecture Americans favor for U.S. courthouses or federal buildings, traditional one out, seven to seven to three, meaning uh, overall 72% prefer traditional, 28% modern. Via political party, the breakdown did not matter. Republicans, Democrat, or Independent, it was the same proportion. Tradition was a clear winner of all demographic groups, including gender, age, region, household income, education, and race. Mm-hmm. Preference for traditional architecture unites all majorities across generations. Traditional styles are the choice of 77 of those aged 65. This could come from the fact that no one knows anything about modern architecture. <laughs> I think it's it's hard to like something that you don't know anything about. Now, it is a strike that you shouldn't intuitively be able to know whether you like it or not. And maybe this is the point that maybe... 30% of modern architecture has been good. Hmm. 
and the people who like modern architecture focus on the good examples while the rest defer to tradition or status quo or the nicest building in town, which would be neoclassical because of certain reasons. But it's right. really just a shift from into the modern era with air conditioning, modern building practices that like, no, all of these changes were done for a reason. Like particularly like with buildings, the slab construction, the slab housing blocks. After World War II, especially in Europe, you had to rebuild the cities entirely. They were all bombed out. There was only one way to rebuild all that housing, and that was with the minimalist or mass construction of concrete, rebar, right. yeah. and metal, and whatever you see in brick. And in America, that's the same thing. With the way our country has grown, both in population and economically, the only way you could build out as much as we have to actually have all the buildings and cities and infrastructure we have is to do it with modern materials. It couldn't have been done otherwise. They're intertwined. Modern architecture is part of living in a car-based society. Like, if you, if you, like, you can't, like, it is actually incongruent to expect that we could have car-based cities with oil-based infrastructure and high-energy use for heating and cooling and, in, and for all the buildings and the cities around the highways and stuff to not be modern architecture. Okay. It couldn't all be neoclassical. It couldn't be anymore. That's why the design, not the designers, but the developers, the owners, they couldn't build a neoclassical anymore. Now, in, as far as the government's concerned, it is more of an ideological choice. And, that, and that's what I meant by, as a modern global superpower, we're going to adopt the international modern style because that is what power projection is about. Since neoclassical and other Victorian styles is what the British used. And we're subsuming the British. We're not going to do what they did. We're better. We're spreading democracy overseas. So we say. Uh, not imperialism. Democracy. Yes. Because you can look at what the British built in their colonies and in the French, and it's neoclassical. It's beaux arts. So, yeah, the breakdown is very similar across all incomes, but, like, they don't say how many of each. It's, it's, it was 2,000 adults, so it's a pretty good sample size, but how much of each is there? Do you have it open so you could, like, kind of, you could give me your opinion on each of uh, each of the sets? So they paired up. Uh, buildings of different of the same size so they have okay. the same pretty much the same massing but just different skins a modern skin versus a neoclassical skin mm -hmm. and one of the problems with the modernist aesthetic is the that it's overly repetitive yeah so, so it's a staccato or a stu an architectural stutter of meaning one new urbanist puts it as like i am a nice place to work Versus right. I, 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 M, 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 A, A, nice, nice place to work. Um, because window bays that repeat the same across the whole face of the building versus neoclassical where at least you have some pediment in the middle. Right. And then you have some bookends on either, either end, which kind of frames the building. Now, modern buildings can still do this with massing, and now they do for the most part. So... There have been improvements over time. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the buildings now, and I gotta say, like the the classical buildings, like do look 
pretty cool. But the one at the very end, the the uh, pair three, uh, so it would be pair seven. Pair seven. The uh, they're both courthouses. Yeah, the Hammond Federal Courthouse. Like, I like that look. Like, Only twenty percent said they preferred it to the Gene Snyder U.S. Courthouse in Kentucky. Hmm. The other one's in Indiana, and. It's also because, like, the one in Kentucky, the courthouse, is besides, like, some flourishes across some bays, it's still just, you can see just that it's the same. It's also very repetitive. Right. Like, I, I don't know, like, I like the classical buildings have more, say, like, they look less monotonous, but I would prefer something that's less monotonous in a different way like in pair seven how the uh the hammond federal courthouse in indiana that does not look monotonous and i think that that looks better than a more classical architecture type and and this is where it's like it's just the association that modern is monotonous right when it doesn't have to be right it's really just a matter of budget that like you just repeat the same bay over and over versus having a more what what's the there's a word for basically you break up the massing or meaning like you you pull pieces in and out like ha- having a roof with like this one courthouse in Alexandria Virginia also a courthouse is it's almost a Cape Cod style but it's in Virginia but i guess it's it's colonial it's colon it's neo colonial Right, and it has. Uh, now I'm forgetting the terminology for it, but it has like a roof with bay windows coming out of it, and mm. that gives it more articulation and stuff. But it's also a meaning yeah. of like the good old days, or like you know, continuation of like this is still Virginia. <laughs> right. You know, were you going to use the same style that the slave owners used? <laughs> but let's see, it's 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 paired with a courthouse in uh, also in Virginia. But it's modern and it's and it's more vertical, and it's it's still opaque as to like what where where's where are the court rooms you know what where are the where are the functions of the building right. so that's like one of the, the the things of good design is to kind of at least give a inkling of what is going on in the building. Hmm. So one way this is done in modern design when it's done well is the uh, outside of the building you'll be see parts of the building in the parts will be will represent the program inside like the theater part of the building will be this one orange block and then the housing wing will be a purple block that has you know south facing windows or something interesting so instead of or- using ornament or these symbols or the you know the symbol of like neoclassical you simply represent what the building is doing you represent the meaning through because the use is what's important right i'm really boiling down like architectural theory right now but there's there's a lot that's been written and some of it is overly written for sure one of the i'm excited to learn anything about architecture this is the first that i'm learning i mean you spend most of your life in buildings right it's kind of what got me into it uh let's see some federal buildings are like you know monotonous office buildings but there's also the fact that they're hermetically sealed mm. boxes, right. and that comes from the high energy use, the you know just the 
not just it's not the architect's fault that central air conditioning makes it so that all the windows are going to be curtain walls that don't open and right. you can't hang stuff out of them or anything like that or, or mess with them or anything. But that's like kind of where we're going back to that with ecological design to actually make buildings, well, you can interact with them again. They're right. not objects. One of the things, a part of like, this is a big modern problem, and it's across all art styles, is that like the object gets commodified and it's, yeah. it's on its own. The building is an object. The thing about postmodern modernist architecture is a critique of it is that it just treated buildings like objects, hmm. like a sculpture. Like, this is a sculpture. This is a building. You know, right. the building should look like what it does. And the, instead, a lot of postmodern is, like, making a building look like um, what it is not. Hmm. Or it's like, you can't tell what this building is. This is a museum. Is it a school? Is it a house? Could be anything. Okay. And that's what makes it more like a good piece of art <laughs> than, a, than a functional building. All right. Which is Gary's style. So he's a famous one. Or Hazaha Hadid, you know, which makes everything kind of look like um, wavy. But then she doesn't care when, like, the big mega project that she designed is done with slave labor. Um, uh, and she's asked about it. And she says, that's not my job. Oh. Or it's like, I'm not paid to worry about that. That kind of stuff. Okay. So in the last uh, section... We'll go to architecture as a profession, as it is now as well. And this is where there's going to be a lot of intersectionalism here. So, All right. So even though we're talking about a specific profession, there's a lot more to be understood. So this is written by Monica Pontillon, who is the Dean of Architecture at Princeton. This, is, this piece is written by Antonio Paladacci, um, and it's on the future of architectural licensing. It seems really a uh, big subject, but it bear with me because it also has implications for professionalism as a whole. As schools of architecture around the country continue to focus on how they can make architecture more diverse and equitable, Princeton University School of Architecture Dean Monica, I'll just put her as Monica, but it's Ponce de Leon, is on a mission to rethink the nature of architectural licensing as it exists in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Following the Dean's recent statement in support of radically rethinking licensure, architect nick site recently connected with her to discuss the significant barriers of access created by it as currently designed her efforts to bring diversity to the faculty and student population of princeton school of architecture and how licensing may change moving forward so let's um connect this to contemporary politics in a statement responding to the most recent set of black lives matter protests you wrote that the system of licensure that has defined so she is responding to the unrest and the passion and the and the activism that we have today. The system of licensure has designed the architectural profession needs to be eliminated or radically transformed. Do you support efforts to include professional licensing as a part of receiving a Master of Architecture education, or do you envision a more fundamental transformation? Should licensing be gotten rid of entirely? Now, I want to point out that in the last few years, licensing has been changed it has been reformed already, but more that it lowered the number of years you have to be uh, an apprentice in a firm. So it mm. used to be like five years, and it's been dropped to two or three. We need to be honest. The profession is predominantly white and male. Only 2% of our architects are black. 
In 08, that number was one and a half. Let's do the math. At that rate, it will take 240 years for the profession to look like the rest of America. I, for one, cannot wait that long. If you focus on black women, the picture is even more dire. Black women comprise just under 0.3% of all, all architects. No, eight, that number was 0.2. This is unacceptable. I point to 08 because back then many of us thought everything was going, going to change, you know, with the recession. Right. The prior year, Marshall Purell had become the first black American AIA president. MIT and Harvard both did conferences on race and architecture. The IAA did its first diversity plenary session. But as it turns out, 12 years later, little has changed. Mm. Now, of course, as leftists, we could say, well, you didn't attack the superstructure. Right. That is what she is proposing. I think it has been clear for a long time that we need radical change at all levels. Who gets to study architecture? Who gets to teach it? Who gets to practice it? Licensing determines who does the practicing. I know that this is a sensitive subject. I'm licensed myself. I belong to that rare 1% of licensed architects who are Latinx. I am first to go to college in my family, and my family is very proud of me when I became licensed. I worked hard to get it, and licensing has been empowering for me. Many think of licensure as the great equalizer. An example I hear often is that after graduation, Norma Merrick applied to uh, 19 firms and facing discrimination, she got rejected by all of them. She ended up working for the City of New York Department of Public Works for four years, took the exam, and passed it on the first try, becoming the first black woman architect licensed in the state of New York. It was only then that SOM, which is the major firm in New York, mm. uh, I've been to their office um, because I had a teacher who worked there. Yes. Mm. That was in 1955. For example, SOM uh, designed Freedom Tower. Okay. And they designed many big projects. They're, very, they're a very big prestigious firm. They're the biggest. Yeah. Today, we need to confront the reality that the face of the profession has hardly changed. It is predominantly white, predominantly male. Licensure is empowering, but who does it empower? The numbers speak for themselves. It's evident that we need a fundamental transformation. What would an ideal transformation of the license, uh, licensure system look like from your perspective? How do you envision instituting such a change both at Princeton and within the larger legal and regulatory frameworks of architectural production? It's like asking, like, you got to change capitalism itself. For the right, system. exactly. But uh, let's... We're, it's like um, it's a it was crime thinks quote like to change anything you gotta change everything right and to change everything start anywhere. Hmm. I believe that we need to eliminate practical training from the process. Practical training, and it's also what's kept me from being, having being licensed. By the way, okay. So this is practical. Like I love her take. Okay, practical training is an exclusionary tactic that serves nothing but to maintain the power structures within the discipline. Now, just not just architecture. Right. You could apply this to exactly. any. Architecture should be more like the legal profession. After graduating from an accredited program, which I have, our students should take the ARE exam and become licensed. Because I could study for the exam right now. Right. Everything about it, I could be prepared. I could probably know all the material. But at the end of the day, I need the practical experience i need to be right. hired by a firm 
And from the recession onward, it's been an old joke. Uh, but if you are you aware of the joke where it's like um, the paradox of you need entry level job yep. requires three years experience. Well, that's the thing. A license in architecture requires three years of experience. No. Oh. So how am I going to hire for the entry level job? And it's literally been like that. Entry level requires experience. Um, now, the assumption is that you get that three years from internships during your school years. Right. But the recession occurred during my school years. Exactly. There were no internships. The system was fundamentally broken. Right. And it was broken in this way because, to put the systematic spin, it's fixed. Right. Fixed how? Well, let's move on. We are one of the few professions that require both examination and experience. Think about this. In order to be a licensed architect, you need to graduate from an NAAB accredited institution. That's the organization that accredits architecture schools. The process that they do is rigorous and thorough, and a whole industry revolves around it. You then need to have practical training working for a licensed architect. If everything goes well, that takes about three years. That's if there's no interruptions. Right. You also need to pass the six divisions of the exam. You need to meet the additional requirements of your jurisdiction, and then you can then earn an extra certificate to practice across borders, particularly state borders. Um. Do we really need that many checks and balances? Who does this benefit? Simple but serious question. All of this seems particularly excessive, when we take into account how highly regulated the process of building is, consider this. Architects are required to work with licensed engineers and various other specialities. Building codes control every aspect of a building. Construction documents go through extensive review by zoning boards uh, for permits. And regular site inspections ensure the building is then constructed according to those codes. To say, like, this okay. is this, like all of this kind of goes into what makes building expensive hmm. but it's also the labor because the labor is compensated fairly right one of the few that's why you learn a trade be paid well because people in contracting actually get good wages because they got good unions usually that as well okay historically professional licensure has effectively served to lock black people out of professional advancement what can be done at this point to reverse that legacy well, I can, I'm not speaking for her, but it's like, I can tell you, it's not going to be some, uh, you know, talking convention thing about it. Okay. Right. Or what's usually liberal diversity training. <laughs> the story that we hear about architectural licensing is that it is necessary. It was necessary to ensure life safety. This may be tr true of structural engineering, but I am not sure this is true of architecture. Calls for licensing for many professions emerged during Reconstruction, and there was a great deal of scholarship about how licensing was used as a tool to discredit black, skilled labor. Architecture is no different. And within this legacy, the requirement of practical training is particularly disturbing. Apprenticeship was a key component of the Southern Black Codes. Hmm. So this kind of reminds me of how, like, you know, modern policing is half slave catchers. Right, exactly. Um, and half keeping the poor down. Yeah. Keeping the Irish uh, at bay. Or keeping the Irish employed within the police force. Well, that's what, that's what they eventually did. They co-opted it. Yeah. Uh, in, in the reverse way. So that's where it's like you, you buy in and yeah. then you control the policing and then uh, 
And then you with then the you police union, the yeah, yeah. And then and then when the the police went on strike in Boston, it it shut things down. You know? Right. To reverse this legacy, we need a system of licensing that acknowledges the gross inequities of the profession and is designed to remet, remedy it. But it's also in recognition that it was structurally from the get-go meant to exclude, not make buildings safe. Right. Codes and zoning do that more effectively, or at least that's why they were brought in, because the licensing wasn't doing it. In the late 19th century, the emergence of architectural education at the university was intended to replace the apprenticeship model. But in the 1920s, practitioners expressed concern that graduates did not have enough hands-on training, which is something that will come up again and again in this, if this becomes an actual debate. And so began experience as a licensure requirement. There was no evidence that working for another architect for three years has made buildings any safer. However, at a fundamental level, practical training has ensured that those who are licensed have de facto control over who can get and cannot then get licensed. Oh. You know, I have to be employed by an architect around here uh, or anywhere, really, if I ever to be licensed myself. Right. And if they're not hiring, or if they're not hiring me in particular, right, then I'm locked out. A hundred years later, we're still operating under the same model of control. IDP and AXP, these are um, the organizations that control licensing, right? have only made it harder. With the current system, Norm Merrick Sackler would have never become licensed. Today, we need to ask, what does hands-on training in architecture really provide? that an architectural education cannot or doesn't. What necessary knowledge does practical training verify that the ARE cannot? Who truly benefits from the system? I believe the numbers speak for themselves. I keep wanting to relate my own personal experience here. Like, oh, yeah, the concern that with architectural education and maybe because of the reliance on the practical training after college, most architecture programs are more concerned with the abstract than the art than the practical version of building. Now, I feel that my education was pretty balanced. You know, we had a structural engineering course, doing some math, construction, construction tech. So like one semester was just transportation, learning about elevators and escalators. And, and one was one semester about HVAC systems, heating, cooling, and another with that's just lighting. Hmm. So not just the form and the you know shape, but also all the things that make a building habitable. But even at the end with my diploma in hand, I don't I still don't feel confident in in doing it all. Right. You know, but that's also because I don't have the hands on training. But I feel like I could get more of it if I could just be employable. Right. And I'm not really employable without that base years of experience that I should have gotten as an intern in school. Yeah. But of course, part of the why I did not have sleepless nights doing architecture school, which is one of the tropes, yeah, is that I didn't have an extra job or internship. Right. I could just focus on doing studio 30 hours a week and the rest of my classes were the other 10, you know, and so it was just to me a nine to five job, so to speak, but of course not nine to five. Right. It's college. Of course, you know, it's more distributed and that way it's better than actual work. Okay. Go on. In 2019, 
The AIA, along with NCARB and other professional organizations in various industries, launched the Alliance for Responsible Professional Licensing, ARPL, a new coalition of technical professions focused on educating policymakers and the public about the importance of rigorous professional licensing standards. Is this the right approach? So she responds, I worry when I hear Robert Ivey, someone who I respect, say, the best way to maintain the public's confidence is to continue to require that architects demonstrate rigorous and ongoing education, examination, and experience. Now, of course, who does he mean by the public with this? White people, generally. Yeah, or rich white people who hire hire the architects. Attempts to weaken, and, and then there's competition involved, you know, because right. all these firms are technically competing with each other. And that's where I just, like, check out, because I am not going to play that game. Attempts to weaken or undermine professional licensing requirements for architects not only harm our profession, but could potentially endanger public health. And this is still uh, Robert Ivy here. So, so he, he sees the whole, like, you know, any dismantling or reform as being a weakening of public health, safety, welfare, right. and also our status, our status as these special professionals. If we really care about the public's confidence, then let us prioritize having the discipline of architecture reflect the public it serves. If the AIA is serious about including black Americans and other groups in the profession, then the system of licensing needs to be designed to empower them. The requirement of over 5,000 hours of work for an already licensed architect, does the opposite. Um, when we began the interview, you uh, stated we also need to change who studies architecture and teaches architecture. What has the School of Architecture at Princeton done in that respect? Yeah, so then, then it pivots to like the personal like at Princeton. So when I came to Princeton in 2016, the representation of black Americans and other groups at the school was dismal. We have done a great deal in this short period of time, and there is a great deal more to be done. Let's start with tenure and tenure-track faculty. I'll skip that, uh, or will I? But by um, we didn't have any black staff in 2016. By 2018, the number changed to 12%, black Americans with tenure. But they were all design faculty. So while 20% of our faculty in design are black, and 20% of faculty are Latinx, we continue to have zero faculty in the PhD program, that are black or Latinx. That is not acceptable. Changing this will be one of our priorities next year. Let's discuss who gets to study at Princeton. 2015, zero of the master's program students were black. The incoming class in 2020 is 14% black, 13% Latinx. The incoming class in the PhD program last year had close to 30% uh, black, but no Latinx. But this year is the reverse, with zero black students and close to 30% Latinx. So pretty inconsistent. Hmm. Who gets to study needs to be tackled at multiple levels, including making architecture accessible to high school students. Princeton, we developed a high school program in partnership with Trenton High School. This is a programmed Milton Curry, and I developed at the University of Michigan, blah, blah, blah. I'd also throw in, though she doesn't mention it, Universal College. Right. Free public college is also part of it of just being able to pay to go to any architecture school. Yeah. Otherwise, most people are like, I can only afford community. I can only afford maybe this state college. Right. Um, but yeah, having architecture as 
an interest in high school is also important. Yeah. I had the ability to take an actual architecture kind of studio class. It was just within the 40 minutes of like a class, you know, right. twice a week. So it wasn't like a full studio as far as production, but it was like an art class. And it was an offshoot of, you know, you do art and then it's like an art two and three yeah. where you draw, you do drafting and we did models, hmm. little, little paper models. And, um, it got me started. Uh, otherwise certain schools that focus on computers may have a CAD design course. We didn't have that at Albany high other richer schools might and do, but many others will cut them like they did with architecture because who can afford all these art classes anymore? Can't have right. photography. Can't have you know even the core stuff gets you know put on the chopping block. It's terrible. It's part of the humanities. In your statement, you also wrote that data drives diversity. Can you explain what this concept means in greater detail? So let me be clear: we do not need to wait for data to enact change. I've argued for data because it makes institutions and their people accountable. For 20, ten years, I have heard that there is progress in diversity. The numbers say otherwise. I do not consider the change from 1.5% to 2% any kind of progress. Yeah. Why have all of our institutions currently uh, in architecture made it so difficult to find demographic data? Why is it that when these institutions publish that such data is incomplete or hard to understand? Why have these organizations not funded serious demographic studies? We do not have information as to what truly... Because that would cost money... And when it comes to the end of the day for liberals, they do not actually want to spend the money. No. Nope. They say they want diversity. Oh, we'll talk about diversity. But as soon as you have to spend money to actually figure out how to have an intelligent reaction, there is none. They're unintelligent because that would cost something. Or it's money they don't have. They are just straining to keep the schools funded as they are. Um mm. So I'm going to wrap up with a little anecdote about how um, out of many lectures, you know, at, at my school, we would have a lecture um, schedule every other week. There would be a different guest lecture um, every Friday evening. And one of them was a neoclassical architect. He okay. was presenting some good lectures will be about, to me, be about some topic. Bad lectures or boring lectures were the ones where they just talked about their work. And then okay. maybe tried to draw some theme from it. Like, this is what I do. Huh. They're boring because it's like, well, we're trying to develop our own style here. We kind of need to know more about the world, not just about like what you like doing. Right. This guy could just talk about, and he talked about one particular courthouse that he designed for, I think it was West Virginia. It was in the Ozarks, Appalachia. And oh. it was a neoclassical courthouse building. And he went through all of it and the design and da, 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 and how, you know, the materials and all the other stuff. And at the end of the day, all of us were just really bored. Uh, yeah. I always look to my, you know, I look to my left and right to the professors that I, maybe I'm sitting next to or whatever. Like, what do you think about this? And they're like, I think it's dreadfully boring. Yeah. <laughs> or it's like, at the end of the day, it's just a courthouse and it doesn't say anything new. And that's kind of where progressive art is about. Is it saying something new? When you say like people like old stuff, you're basically saying that nothing needs to change. Yes. That the status quo is okay. That the architecture, the neoclassical that was done, that was built when Jim Crow was in full effect, yeah. and that those old buildings have separate areas for separate groups. Mm. 
Sim- it's kind of like how um, it's not the same thing, but it makes me think of how uh, soon enough, in every new building will have either unisex bathrooms or bathrooms will not be separated by gender, but by some other criteria. Maybe one it was like a, one joke is like one. This bathroom has urinals and this bathroom doesn't. Right. That's the separation. Uh, or one joke article. It wasn't a joke. It was actually an okay idea. Like one is for number one and one is for number two. Since, I like that actually. The you know the amount of cleaning and the kind of considerations for a bathroom depending on what you're doing in it. Yeah, I like matter. having a peepish bathroom and a poopish bathroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, definitely not sex segregation, which right. is what it, what it really is, um, or gender segregation particularly, since it's not sex is not really the factor. Actually, that's what like my family has in the house. We have the downstairs bathroom is for number one, and the upstairs bathroom is for number two, because we don't want to use the downstairs bathroom, which is directly next to the kitchen, mm-hmm. and stink it up. <laughs> yeah. So you're already, yeah, and in many ways, practically, we do it. I mean, we don't right. have sex-segregated bathrooms in our homes. Exactly. Why should we have them in our train stations? Uh, which, when I look at an old train station plan, it had separate waiting areas for men and women. Not just bathrooms, but whole areas, as well as separate air waiting areas for black and white. So I work in a school, and uh, the kids have to use the bathroom. And we have – it's a very interesting system. Instead of having a male and female bathroom, they have a adult's bathroom and a, a children's bathroom. Yeah, yeah. No, I see that in most schools now. Um, and, and they're actually both open. It's not like a staff bathroom. Exactly. I know. I really like that when I was subbing. I wouldn't have to ask for a key or something. I was worried about it. Well, I also have to sign off. Thank we have 30 you. seconds. Um, <laughs> profound thanks for listening. I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories and topics you'd like to hear discussed. Check us out on social media, Facebook or Twitter. All new episodes are posted there. This show is edited for a podcast, uh, so it's nice to listen to, hopefully louder. <laughs> um, but otherwise, be well. Keep it rad. Keep waving the flags of the three laughs. Have a good one. Peace.